Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen and Friends. If Watch With Jen is the studio track, this is the acoustic version. Today's guest is Brianna Ashby, a gifted artist who's beautiful, soulful, richly detailed, and wonderfully humanistic paintings of some of cinema's finest moments and favorite figures first caught my eye on Twitter. Brianna Ashby is a treasure, a graduate of the prestigious Rhode Island School of Design with a Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Illustration. After college, Brianna went on to become the co-founder of and illustrator for the highly regarded online film journal, Bright Wall Dark Room, or BWDR, where she started as a writer 10 years ago. Additionally, a passionate costume maker who also makes jaw-droppingly gorgeous cakes, Brianna, who was born and raised in Connecticut, still resides in her home state, along with her husband, two adorable children, and a pet rabbit. One of the only people I know who loves Ed and Northern Exposure as much as I do, Brianna is well-versed in pop culture and has an outstanding record collection. I've really enjoyed getting to know her on social media, and I cannot wait to talk to her today on Watch With Jen. Welcome, Brianna. How are you, and how are you adapting to pandemic life? I don't know if you're still under quarantine, but how are you doing? Uh, I'm hanging in there. I kind of feel like my brain has been on a slow leak for the past two, three months. Uh, so I'm just trying to kind of keep it together. It's summer. I have two kids I have to entertain. So it's interesting. It's a juggling act (laughs) for sure. Good. Well, as someone who is so notoriously bad at drawing that my friends actually refuse to play Pictionary with me, it's always the draw something resembling anything baby fish mouth scene from when Harry met Sally whenever I try to play Pictionary. So I want to ask, I'm always impressed by people who can do what you do. And I'd love to know if you were always into drawing or painting and art or how did that come about? Not really. Uh, It didn't really hit for me until I was probably a sophomore in high school. And then it was just kind of this bolt from the blue, like, oh, this is a thing that I'm into. And I think I'm pretty good at it. Um, And then I started looking at it more intensely and started taking AP classes. And I had a lot of encouragement from my family and my teachers and it just kind of snowballed from there oh that's wonderful well congratulations on bright wall dark room it is so well respected it's thoughtful the contributions including your art and tony stella's are always top notch so what were the origins of the site like and how did you create that wonderful community so about i guess it was 10 years ago ish Uh, My friend Tess Lynch was writing for this small film essay-oriented Tumblr, Brightwell Darkroom, and I had a MySpace at the time where I posted very uh, over-sherry emotional blog entries, as one did on MySpace at the time, and she was like, "Ah, you know, would you be interested in writing for this thing? And I said, sure. And uh, so I started off as a writer, 
And then as the site grew bigger, we ended up with a few hundred thousand uh, Tumblr subscribers. And then um, Chad Perman, the editor-in-chief, decided maybe we should start branching out. And he had this amazing idea to turn it into a digital magazine. And then so we started having conversations about, you know, how we would bring that about and bring it to fruition. And he wanted some art to go with it and some illustration. And I said, oh, well, you know, I went to art school and it had just never come up before. And oh. he was like, wait, really? Yeah, sure. So I threw my hat in the ring. Uh, and it started out, you know, as a small experiment. And then it just worked. We've always had a really amazing uh, cachet of writers that mm -hmm. uh, were attracted to, you know, our, the different tone that we had in comparison to everything else, because it wasn't just criticism. It was, it's, a, it's always been a much more personal, um, kind of emotional take on traditional film essays. So yeah, and then it just kind of took off and it's gone places where we certainly never imagined and we have conversations about it all the time. Like, can you even believe that this is where we are now from where we started? So it's pretty surreal. Yeah. Well, your portraits are always so impressive because they really seem to capture the soul of the people that you're drawing. Your recent before sunset painting is like my new favorite. Do you have any works in progress you can tell us about? And how long do those take you? Because they're so intricate. It's amazing. Uh, a very long time, <laughs> depending on the piece. Um, right now, I just, I'm actually taking a month off from Brightwall to catch up on some commission work, which has fallen by the wayside and crazy pandemic non-time timeline. But yeah, so the typical piece, I guess it depends that the one you just mentioned, I probably painted for about 15 hours. Oh, wow. So yeah, they are a true labor of love, <laughs> I guess, in <laughs> a very genuine sense. They take, I'm extremely detail oriented for uh, lack of a better term. <laughs> well, I think that's why they're so good. Do you watch the movies like a few times or do you? Just sort of find the image and capture it. It depends on the movie. Some I've never actually seen. Oh, um, yeah. So it depends. There are writers that have been very patient with me and will, you know, explain their takes on the movie. And uh, so I get kind of a behind the scenes peek at what they're thinking. As, which is very helpful to me, especially if it's a film I haven't seen, um, to kind of bring to life what their main themes are for, you know, what they're writing about. Um, but for a movie like Blade Runner or Fargo or something, I kind of have the benefit at this point of being able to cherry pick the oh. movies I really want to do. Um, so sometimes it's something that I really have a lot of affection for already and that I think that shows through in 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 some of the pieces for sure I agree with you oh if somebody wanted to commission you for your work how would they go about doing that because 
I know you have a store and I'm going to link to that as well in this post. But yeah, I know you can be hired to paint one of your wonderful images. So how would somebody do that to hire you? Very simply, just shooting me an email and then it's and then we go from there. It's kind of a more personalized process, I guess, than I don't know how other artists operate because I'm like in my own little world 25% of the time. But, you know, someone will say, hey, I had an idea for this, you know, and then I'll send them sketches and there's a little bit of back and forth. And then, you know, I try to bring to life what they had in mind or some version of maybe what they had imagined. So it's, yeah, it's basically just like sending me an email and we'll chat about it and, you know, figure something out. Perfect. Yeah, I was talking to Blake Howard about how you designed the logo for his 20 minute productions. I love that so much. And he was saying, like the process of you sending sketches or him, he's like, I drew like stick figures and tried to <laughs> what, what I was looking for. And, you know, of course, you just hit it out of the park. And I said, yeah, maybe someday I'll commission like a bunch of dineros or something really nerdy like that. And he was saying, yes, but have to give her plenty of notice. So I'm telling everybody, give Rihanna some notice in, in yeah. advance. Yeah, it, uh, it takes me some time. There's no quick turnaround, unfortunately, <laughs> which is it, it's kind of a detriment in some ways that I am so slow. I'm a dinosaur and it's all analog. Nothing is digital. So it just it's a process. I think that's why there's so much texture in the work, too. You're not digitally doing anything with it. So it's very real and just authentic. And I can't recommend it enough, personally. I know you love pop culture, great movies and TV. You joked that your four favorite films of 2020 were Phantom Thread, like times four. So what have you been watching (laughs) What have you been watching lately? Anything you'd like to recommend? Honestly, I've watched a total of two movies during quarantine. I watched Phantom Thread and <laughs> I watched Something Wild, uh, which I'd also never seen before. And it was absolutely fantastic. I loved yeah. it. In terms of everything else I've been watching, I think I've been doing a lot of comfort food watching, which mm-hmm. seems to be... Uh, a popular mode of operation at this point. Just like how many episodes of Frasier can I watch to kind of calm my brain down? Yeah, that's so, one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. Like just I just want to mainline something nice and like funny and light and just kind of tune out the world for a hot second. Yeah, exactly. It's like life affirming and reassuring. And even if you know the plot, it just, there's something about it that is completely comforting. It's like a favorite blanket. So I've been going for, yeah, 90s uh, sitcoms and that kind of thing. I'm also restarting, I can't believe it's been 30 years. I'm restarting Northern Exposure. I'm just about to enter season three. And I can't believe in July, like I think a week or two, it will turn 30 because it's just so fresh and it's timeless just love it so much yeah it's I and that kind of very special <sighs> quirkiness mm-hmm. I think it, I, I, I find a lot of kind of comfort in that kind of weirdness yeah like, 
you know, the first, I mean, Twin Peaks certainly has its incredibly unsettling moments, but you know, when you get to like finding a fish in a percolator, it's, (laughs) it's a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I know. And I think like Twin Peaks, Frasier, Northern Exposure, one of, and Ed, one of the cool things about all of those series is you could watch an episode and have a different favorite character like every time you watch. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, I think that's really special because nowadays you might like two characters or something. If so, it was nice to go back to these great ensemble works and see the care that was put into the writing of all of these characters. And I know you also have a really good record collection. You were talking about Bruce Springsteen and you too quite often. So what are your favorite records and are there any treasures you're still looking for? I have a very limited record collection at this point, but it's pretty carefully curated and very heavily on the dad rock side i'm basically like a middle-aged man who listens to rush trapped in like a you know the 38 year old woman's body it's kind of insane um (laughs) right now my favorite records i have a the springsteen box set 75 to 85 i think live set and it's really incredible so i've been listening to that a lot um, I listen to Peter Gabriel so a lot mm-hmm. on vinyl. I just got both Cream albums on vinyl because I'm a dad. <laughs> so right now I think those are probably my favorites. I would love to find an original copy of uh, Power, Corruption, and Lies by New Order. Because I'm mm-hmm. kind of a snob about a lot of things which is fine with me I will own the snobbery so I like to buy things vintage instead of like buying reissues or whatever so I've been looking for that one for a while I'm trying to think of any others oh I've been looking for a copy of Bonnie Wright's Streetlights it's harder to come by than one would think but someone just recently introduced me to Discogs have you been on that site it's like this insane audiophile vinyl nerd (laughs) um, where you can catalog your own collection and it's also just this huge common marketplace so once I discovered that it was kind of like the doors sprang wide open it's very dangerous because I just have a running shopping cart that's like $600 worth of records at any given time. (laughs) Maybe tone this down a little bit. I have the same thing. I have like shopping carts all over the web of rare classic film books and box sets that are either out of print or a different region. And it's like fun to just put them in your cart and never check out. But the temptation is always there. So it is definitely dangerous. Is record collecting like a new thing for you that you started getting into in adulthood? Yeah, so growing up, my parents always had a record player and I had my favorite records as a kid. And then it definitely went out of fashion, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And also I was just moving around all the time and moving into little apartments. And I definitely was not lugging a record player and speakers and, you know, all up and down the eastern seaboard with me. 
Um, so a few years ago, actually, it was almost eight years ago now, for my 30th birthday, a friend sent me the Moonrise Kingdom soundtrack on vinyl, and I didn't have a record player. Oh, wow. So I went out and bought a record player, and then I started amassing records from, you know, people's parents that didn't want them anymore, and then you know, looking through dusty bins at antique stores and kind of getting into it. And then so the collection has slowly grown over time. It's been it's been it's been a fun thing to collect, even yeah. though I'm starting to realize how much room they take up when you hit a certain point. <laughs> That's the problem with physical media. I love it, but it's a space issue always. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a lot and you know, if I lived by myself, I would probably just have stuff everywhere all the time. <laughs> but having to take other human beings into account, is, it kind of puts a damper a little bit on my on my uh, collector's impulses, except for vintage dresses. I just keep I just like squish those into the closet and no one else has to deal with them. So that just continues unabated, basically. <laughs> well, you need that collection. Everybody needs vintage dresses. And I know you love to make costumes. So what are some of the favorite ones that you've made? Probably the year my daughter and I were Han Solo and Princess Leia. I was Han. I loved was that Han. photo. Yes. And I made, I've made almost everything from scratch. Like Han's holster and belt and the vest with all the pockets. They all worked and... Oh, wow. The same to insane detail that happens when I paint happens when I make costumes, too. Mm-hmm. And it's like a month and a half of just like scraps of fabric and hot glue on my dining room table. <laughs> like everyone's just like pushing them aside so they can eat dinner. Mm-hmm. So those those were probably some of my favorites. And the year. Mm, yeah, the year we did Alice in Wonderland was really good, too. I made my daughter a really elaborate Queen of Hearts costume. She always wants to be the evil one, which I'm not quite sure how to take that. (laughs) We'll see how that goes when she's a teenager. (laughs) Might be a sneak preview, but it sounds like she's a really good kid from everything you've shared. Are your children into, I mean, I know the young one is too little. Are they into any of your hobbies? Um, does your daughter enjoy art at all or music? She does. Or? She does. She, I think she's a little bit reluctant to admit that she likes the music that I listen to because uh, she's at the yeah. world. It's definitely not cool at all to be <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I really like this Depeche Mode song, but I catch her singing along so she can't actually hide from me. But she definitely has uh, some artistic bent. She's been spending a lot of time this summer crafting because she has nothing else to do. So it's been nice to see the fruits of her boredom. (laughs) Yeah, the creative output. I, I can dig that. That's really cool. Well, you mentioned Moonrise Kingdom. And I know, didn't you have like a Wes Anderson themed birthday celebration one year? I did. My 30th birthday party was Wes Anderson themed. I made these really elaborate wax sealed invitations that I mailed to everyone and everyone came in costume. 
everything was labeled Futura lettering that I cut out individually, all the beverages and food. And it was absurd. It was really fun, though. Yeah. Yeah. I know you love movies. What ones do you go to or watch the most of Wes Anderson? Rushmore. Yeah, that one's great. (laughs) I love Murray so much. Yeah. I know. My second most watched Wes is Royal Tenenbaums. I think that's my favorite, but I seem to watch Ball Rocket the most because I think that was the first one I watched. I actually watched it when it was new. And I remember showing it to friends and they just did not get it. And I was, you know, laughing so hard. I was like, somebody out there has my sense of humor. This is so cool. But yeah, it took him a while to, to get into it. But I, I love his movies. I do too. There's, I feel like he gets such a bad rap for being twee and too focused on aesthetics and symmetry. And I feel like everyone that makes those arguments is really just kind of missing Mm -hmm. the point. There's so much weird, messy humanity underneath all of that stuff, which I find that much more powerful because it's like in the guise of this like really beautiful like every shot could be its own little diorama and you know I to be able to produce something that is that specific and beautiful and to really develop your own visual language which is exactly what he did I mean he's been ripped off so many times at this point commercially and you know people throwing Wes Anderson themed weddings where you know you think you throw a couple old books on the table and you're calling it inspired by (laughs) whatever yeah there's just there's so much more to his stuff I think than people give him credit for I agree. And I think exactly what you were saying. It's almost like it takes a second viewing to fully grasp everything going on. The first time you're kind of overwhelmed by it's like a sensory overload, the beauty of the movie, all the great songs, because his scores are so perfect. And the needle drops throughout, especially like Royal Tannenbaums just kill me. But then the second time you watch, you're completely just enraptured by the emotions and yeah I think it's it takes maybe a little bit longer and maybe some people don't have the patience for it but I really appreciate his work as well yeah he's definitely my favorite yeah what is it with the Andersons you have him and then Paul Thomas it's like must be something about the name I guess no (laughs) I guess some kind of magic is Uh, is under there yeah so other favorite movie Blade Runner okay Phantom Thread really shot up to the upper echelons of my list. Oh my God, what a stunning movie. Um, Let's see. I'm trying to think. Wings of Desire is one of my favorites. Um, But then I go, I veer into like clueless territory. I have very uh, non-cinephile favorites, I guess, in terms of... uh, (laughs) Lewis is actually my favorite Jane Austen adaptation like me it's It's incredible yeah when I was going to college one of our professors was teaching a special topics course and it was all on Jane Austen and some of the other people in the faculty were like looking down on her because she chose Clueless when they covered Emma she said, no, it's exactly what Jane Austen would have wanted it has the spirit of the young heroine And kind of it plays with language. I mean, she invented some words. 
like, this is what that book is about. And yeah, it, all of her enthusiasm for it kind of added a new layer for me. And yeah, I just love that movie so much. That's going to celebrate its 25th anniversary in July as well. That's Can't believe. Cool. Yeah. It, I still remember seeing it in the theater as a kid. So. I do too. I, my outfit for my first day of high school was knee socks, uh, faux crocodile loafers, a plaid skirt, and and a baby tee straight out of the list. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I, I miss the fashion of the 90s. Lately, I've been craving like those long floral button down dresses that we used to wear with like chokers and boots and that whole 90s look. So yeah, I hear you. I miss the fashion. I do too. I've actually started buying some 90s vintage. Like I bought a pair of tall lace-up boots and, you know, very similar like floral Mm -hmm. dresses. I think at this point, nostalgia is a necessary thing (laughs) for me in ways because everything is just so not great (laughs) at the moment in the world at large. And so kind of having the opportunity to kind of just go back and re-experience a different time, even, you know, I, like I mentioned, I have a whole collection of vintage dresses. So, you know, kind of putting on something that had a life and a story of its own decades before I was born is a nice escape for me. And the 90s was such an amazing, heady time. Everything was wonderful. Like I had the best time when I was a kid and into my teenage years. And so like throwing on something with sunflowers all over it just feels like this really nice escape. It's like, oh, it's good to be back. (laughs) Very much. I think nostalgia right now is the best currency. And I think everyone is trying to cash in on it. And I think it's what we need. Exactly. But it's interesting because I feel like it is definitely something that we need. And I obviously, like I said, it's necessary for me and I understand everyone gravitating toward it. But I also am so wary of like every reboot of everything that's coming out (laughs) of it. Like there's such a fine line between like nostalgia for nostalgia's sake I guess to like elicit nice happy emotions from people and then just like totally capitalizing it on it yeah. to just cash in and make money which I find weird and gross yeah I know I heard that like unsolved mysteries is coming back and they're bringing all this stuff it's like just leave it in the past and create some new work yeah I mean yeah if it's not if it's not broken, don't fix it. There's so many things that just they're fine the way they are. Just I know <laughs> nobody better remake Frasier or any of our favorite shows. That would be awful. <laughs> no, no, never. I would boycott. I would. I don't know what I would do remaking Frasier. <laughs> I know change.org petition like now. <laughs> just kidding. I'm trying to imagine who they would even cast in that role at this point. And it's just like, it would be someone too good looking. It would just all, it's already a disaster in my mind. 30 seconds into this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I hope no TV um, execs are listening going, Hey, they're onto something there. And it's like, no, (laughs) the opposite of what we want. 
Well, your vintage dress collection has piqued my interest. So what are some of the hallmarks or standouts of your collection? Um, I have a really beautiful 20s long-sleeved beaded dress that I usually just keep folded in tissue and plastic and hidden away. Um, But I actually wore it to a jazz age tea dance a couple years ago. Um, There's a band leader in New York City who they put on the jazz age lawn party every year, but they also do these smaller events in between. So it was like this really beautiful, intimate little dance with the full band uh, in this great little club in Brooklyn and you just go in and you, everyone is in total period garb and like having cocktails in the middle of the day. Like they're in a speakeasy in the twenties and it's just, you come out of it and it's really kind of disorienting because the world has been happening outside and standing outside in a you know, hundred year old dress waiting for the subway. It's really, a, it's kind of shocking to, to, it's like time traveling. Yeah. So that one's one of my favorites. And then I have a, a dressing gown from the 1930s, a fire engine red kimono sleeved satin dressing gown that hangs up in my bedroom that I gaze longingly at all the time. Yeah, you can imagine like Carol Lombard or somebody wearing that, and oh, I bet it just feels so regal. Yeah, it's um, it's unlike anything. I mean. Like I, like I said earlier, you know, I love things that feel like they already have a soul because they do. They mm-hmm. live and they went places and, you know, God only knows where in the world this incredibly luxurious, beautiful dressing gown traveled to before it found its way to Providence, Rhode Island and into my <laughs> possession. And it's, uh, yeah, sorry, brain. Oh, no, I love that. <laughs> I know you were saying that you live adjacent to Stars Hollow. So what is the connection to Gilmore Girls there? So I grew up adjacent to Stars Hollow. I live in a different part of Connecticut now, but growing up, um, my hometown is Woodbury, Connecticut. And on Gilmore Girls, Amy Sherman Palladino wrote uh, Woodbury Inn as Stars Hollow's nemesis. (laughs) so every time taylor you know gets mad because there's some like town-wide contest or something and they're always competing with woodbury and i always get this like really serious flash of hometown pride every time that happens (laughs) it's she was up in the area and based stars hollow on um the town right next to where i grew up and then sort of took elements from, you know, the surrounding towns and fed them into this magically realistic version of weird little antique ridden towns in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's funny, the things that made its way into the show that seem kind of far-fetched. Like, I don't know how much Gilmore Girls you've watched, if any. Um, oh, I love it. <laughs> okay. Um like all the colonial reenactments, like that's mm-hmm. really a thing. My hometown puts on these civil war, like co- not civil war, but colonial reenactments at least once a year. And it's just like people's 
dads and like, you know, your English teacher or it's like suddenly in a field in full garb with a musket <laughs> reenacting scenes. It's pretty amusing. Yeah, they take a break from listening to the dad rock and they go back into colonial times. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually came to Gilmore Girls a little late. A guy I was dating thought that I was like Lorelei. He's like, you're exactly like Lorelei. So, you know, recommended it. I started watching and just became hooked. And it was one of those things I'd always heard it was good. I didn't have the DVDs or access and I didn't want to just jump in in season four or something and I have no idea. Yeah. What was going on, but I watched it in such quick succession that I caught up to the regular run of the show. Just love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's easy to do though. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things on earth. And I understand, I guess, to a certain degree, people's criticisms of it. Um, but it's so, I mean, I may be biased considering I basically, you know, grew up in Stars Hollow, but I just find it so warm and sharp. And, you know, some of the jokes at this point are dated and yeah. you know, could use some rewriting. But for the most part, I think I'm, I watch it with my daughter and we've watched it. I think this is our third time watching the full series through and it still really holds up I cry at least every other episode it's I know what did you think of the new season that they added for Netflix necessary not necessary what was your take I don't know that it was necessary but I was so I was one of those people I that was really grateful to be have the opportunity to like jump back into that world and some of the stuff was a little bit fan servicey like yeah. you know dean popping in for one scene at doses and it's like okay fine but i i feel like the crux of what they did with the revival revolving around richard's death i think mm-hmm. was really well done And it was really heartfelt. You know, they really, that whole crew misses him like crazy. And he was such a huge part of the show. And um, to kind of write that loss into it in real time, you could really, I think you could really feel what they were feeling. Um, And I thought that it was really I thought it was really nice. I I enjoyed it. I did too. I thought the intention was there. It was very pure and just very touching. I enjoyed it. I mean, there were some things about it that, yes, seemed a little fan servicey or maybe a little out of character. But overall, it was just so nice to revisit Stars Hollow and be back in the company of all of those people. So I was very excited to see the new update. Yeah, And I think that they did a really good job you know, toward the end of the actual series when the Paladinos exited, I think they were also really grateful to have the opportunity to come back and finish the story the way that they wanted to. And I really was a little bit, I guess, pleasantly surprised that they were able to really keep so much of the rhythm and the pacing. And it just felt very much like a natural continuation of the series and not like a, 
it could have been very stilted, you know, like you having to dust off this very <laughs> particular cadence and rhythm and after years and, you know, for the actors too. I read Lauren Graham's autobiography and uh, she was talking about how their scripts were just twice as thick as anything she'd ever seen because there was so much dialogue. It was mm-hmm. just so, because it, it was just so fast. And I think that they were able to kind of really get back into that rhythm. Yeah, that's incredible. It's like, I know. I tried. I know. I think it's like two pages a minute or something like that. It's really unreal. And Lauren Graham never really got the recognition she deserved from the show. I miss her on TV. I don't know. Is she in anything now that you know of? Or is Parenthood maybe? Um, uh, Zoe's Infinite Playlist. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's what she's doing now. I haven't seen it. Um, but it seems like she's kind of getting back, like doing the musical theater thing, how she kind of started her career. So it seems like she's found a nice little home there. Very cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. I've heard some positive feedback on that series. I think you can watch it on Hulu, I believe. So look for it. I'm going to have to check that one out. Because have you watched The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yes. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I need to finish the second season. But I, yeah, I thought it, that was really so... This, I mean, it has that same, like, snappy... Yeah. Our girls writing just sharp and funny and Tony Shalhoub is just. Oh, he's so good. It's unbelievable how good he is on that show. I know. I've been a big fan of his forever, though. I used to love him on Monk. Oh, yeah. Uncool to say you loved Monk, but I really did. I thought it was so much. so, So enjoyable. And he's just a delight overall. Yeah. And so cool to see him on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and see the continuation of his career and getting to play interesting characters. Really cool. Yeah, he's awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this and talking about pop culture and fashion and everything. I've always enjoyed interacting with you on Twitter and I just couldn't wait to do it semi in person. I want to thank you so much, Brianna. I really appreciate this. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I don't get a lot of uh, podcast invites, so this one was wonderful. I was uh, really excited that you asked. I'm definitely probably not as uh, quick on my feet <laughs> as some of your other guests. Yeah, <laughs> much more to this, you know, talking to other humans. Most of the time I spend talking to a two-year-old. So my adult communication skills, I think, are a little bit lacking at this point. <laughs> oh, no, you're perfect. I was so just blown away by some of your descriptions of Wes Anderson's movies and everything. So no, you were fabulous. Thank you so much. Okay, good. Still, still, uh, still got it a little yes, bit. Yes, <laughs> No, this was really fun. Thank you so much. And it was really nice to actually meet you virtually. You too. All right. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your trip in 
and Maine and wish your family all the best and take care. Thank, Thank you. you. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen and Friends.